Uh, what would you prefer, style over substance or substance over style? Uh, the internet has voted and the clear winner is style over substance. I read this article in the New York Times recently called Honeymoon Hashtag Hell. The article claimed that 70% of brides post on social media during their honeymoon. Uh, this couple, uh, the, the husband, J.P. Smith, described his week-long honeymoon with his new wife, Natasha, as a sunset nightmare, stressful, cumbersome, torturous. Miss Huang Smith, who works in digital marketing, was attempting to showcase their honeymoon on Instagram. I had to prove to the world that I was having a great time, she said. And so half of her day was spent shooting, editing or planning Instagram posts. Miss Huang Smith said she felt compelled to prove to the world that her honeymoon was as epic as her wedding. Before and during the trip, she researched grammable hotels, restaurants and beaches. Social media made his honeymoon not enjoyable, Mr. Smith said. They almost separated after that trip, he said. Not because of the honeymoon alone, but it was pretty bad. That's crazy, isn't it? To post amazing photos of your honeymoon as though you're completely in love, loving every moment of it, when the reality is the opposite. And it's not just that, that couple, though, is it? I, I see it all the time on Facebook. There's this great pressure to portray how much you are winning at life when the reality is not that at all. Jesus has something to say about this. Any day of the week, Jesus prefers substance over style. Jesus wants substance in our lives. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father God, we pray that these words of Jesus would remain in us so that they would bear fruit for Jesus. Uh, please speak through me. Um, yeah, in spite of my weakness, Please use me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, there's two points that I want to make from this passage in front of us. Remain in Jesus to be fruitful, and remaining means relationship. Firstly, remain in Jesus to be fruitful. Verse 1, I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. Verse 4, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The key word that jumps out at you from this passage is the word remain. It appears all over this passage. In particular, Jesus says the phrase, remain in me, in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. Some English translations use the term, abide in me, stay in me. Clearly, Jesus wants his followers to remain in him. And to drive this home, Jesus paints an analogy of a grapevine. Imagine a bunch of plump, healthy-looking grapes, and of course, the source of nutrients for these grapes comes from the healthy, woody vine. And the branch is what connects the fruit to the vine. So to explain the analogy, the source of all that is good 
and healthy in the Christian life is Jesus, the strong vine. We who follow Jesus, we are the branches. Branches on their own are useless to produce fruit. In other words, without our connection to Jesus, we are simply unable to live the fruitful lives that Jesus desires. In other words, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, that's the analogy, but he extends the analogy some more. Verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Uh, Jesus refers to God as the gardener, the vine dresser. And like any good gardener who desires fruit from his branches, God prunes the branches so that they would bear even more fruit. Now, the Greek word for prune in verse 2 is also the same word used for clean in verse 3. It's the word of God, the word of Jesus that God uses to prune to make his followers clean. We've seen earlier in the Gospel of John that the word of Jesus brings life to those who hear him and believe in him. This is John 5, verse 24. Very truly I tell you, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. It's the word of Jesus that brings us life. It's the word of Jesus that brings fruit in our lives. It is the word of Jesus that connects branches to the vine. We cannot live Christian lives without first believing the word of Jesus. And Jesus provides a sober warning as to why it is so important to remain in the vine. Verse 6 if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus says a fruitless branch is not only cut off from the vine, it is burned in the fire. And so to reject Jesus is to remain in our sin, to sit under the judgment of God because of our guilt before him. John the Baptist spoke of this in chapter 3 of John's Gospel. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And we've already seen this play out in recent weeks. We've seen Judas, who was given the opportunity to remain in Jesus, but he chose to reject Jesus, and he suffered God's judgment because of that. Why is it so important for Jesus to be this vine? We need to dig back into the Old Testament. The disciples would have been familiar with this language of vineyards and vines, and they would have thought of Israel. Israel was God's vine. God transplanted Israel into the promised land from Egypt, and this vine was planted by God into the land he promised to Israel, and he wanted Israel to be fruitful, to be a nation that reflected him, that obeyed him, that was a light to the other nations. But Israel was unfaithful to God, and so God punished them, using other nations to destroy the vine. 
Psalm 80, verse 16. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your right hand rest on the man at your right hand. The son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. The psalm finishes with an impassioned plea to God to restore God's people that they might be saved. But the psalm points to the hope, not in Israel, but in the Son of Man, the one at God's right hand. In other words, Israel, the nation, is not the true vine. Neither are the disciples of Jesus the true vine. Jesus here in John 15 says, I am the true vine. Any other option will fail. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 80. Only Jesus obeys God where everyone else fails to obey God. He is the vine. The disciples aren't the vine, but they are still given the task of bearing fruit. Look at verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Well, that raises the question, what is this fruit that Jesus wants? Uh, is the fruit quantity? That, that is, is it, is it people, more people coming to believe in Jesus? Now, I think that is certainly the case. And we're going to see that in the next couple of chapters of John. Jesus tells the disciples that they are to testify of him to others. And then Jesus is going to pray for those who are going to believe in their message as they testify about him. But I believe it's more than that too. I believe the fruit is also quality. The quality of your Christian life. Hey, fruitfulness, we're going to see in this chapter, is a growing relationship with Jesus, growing love, growing obedience, growing joy, growing dependence in prayer. All of these are the lasting fruit, I think, of remaining in Jesus. But I'm going to just take a moment to apply this. When it comes to Jesus, faithfulness always comes before fruitfulness. In fact, faithfulness leads to fruitfulness. Remaining in Jesus is the only way to bear fruit. You notice that Jesus doesn't tell the disciples, just produce fruit, just be fruitful. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, remain in me, remain in me. Jesus wants faithfulness. Lance Armstrong is the most decorated cyclist in the history of the Tour de France. Seven years in a row, he won the coveted yellow jersey from 1999 to 2005. And Armstrong's story was this incredible triumph over adversity, struck down with advanced testicular cancer that had spread throughout his body. Armstrong not only fought the disease, but after just three years after cancer, he won his first tour. He wrote a book about his journey back to life called It's Not About the Bike. He made millions. He became a household name. It sounded all too good to be true, and it was. 
Armstrong was stripped of all seven of his titles for drug cheating. In 2012, the US Anti-Doping Agency reported that Armstrong's unbeatable US postal team ran the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program the sport has ever seen. And Armstrong was its ringleader. You see, that is what it looks like when you value fruitfulness over faithfulness. Armstrong's commitment to winning at life, his insatiable desire for success, his belief in his own hype, meant that he was willing to sacrifice everything, even his integrity. And in the end, he was found out. Fake it until you make it, until you get found out. It's easy to criticize others, isn't it? Like, like, like Lance Armstrong. But I think the reality is the temptation is there for each one of us to value fruitfulness over faithfulness. And it's very real in the Christian life. You can look very Christian. You can attend church. You can go to your Bible study, you can put money in the offering bags, you can mind your language, you can be nice to others, you can get baptized even, you can serve others. You can even tick the box, Christian, on your census form. And you can do all these things and for none of it to be about Jesus. Judas was a good example, wasn't he? And I'm sure all of us know personally Someone who once followed Jesus, but now no longer does. Maybe someone who was even a Christian leader, someone who even looked like they were a very fruitful Christian, but in the end they were missing one crucial ingredient, Christ. Faithfulness is what matters. Faithfulness to Christ. Faithfulness is what leads to lasting fruitfulness. And this brings us to the second point. Remaining means relationship. What does it look like to be faithful to Jesus? To remain in Jesus is all about relationship with Jesus. It's not rocket science. It means listening to Jesus, obeying Jesus, praying and loving Listening to Jesus, verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I've made known to you. All relationships start by listening. And it is no different in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus speaks to his disciples through his words. Jesus speaks to his disciples as friends for whom he has laid down his life on the cross. And Jesus includes them into his plans and his father's plans as he speaks to them. And they must listen to him. And so it is with us too. Jesus' words must remain in us. So every time we open the Bible publicly or privately, we have an opportunity to listen to Jesus. So let me ask you, how, how are you listening to Jesus? Is that something you expect when you approach the Bible? 
Lord Jesus, speak to me through your word. Please open my ears to hear you. But we must do more than listen. The Apostle James tells us that we must be hearers and doers of the word. We must obey Jesus. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love. You are my friends if you do what I command. Although Jesus lays down his life on the cross for his friends, we are not his equals. Jesus, uh, Jesus commands us, but we never command Jesus. We obey Jesus because he is our Lord. We obey Jesus because he knows best for us. And sometimes uh, to obey Jesus is to be pruned by God's word. It's not pleasant, is it, when Jesus wants us to put a particular sin to death that we struggle with. It's not easy when Jesus commands us to love someone that we find difficult to love. But we must obey Jesus. So let me ask you, are you a friend of Jesus by obeying his commands? Remaining in Jesus means praying. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. If remaining in Jesus is about relationship, then relationship involves speaking to God, asking for things in the name of Jesus. And Jesus invites us to pray whatever we wish for. It sounds too good to be true, isn't it? It's like a blank check. But Jesus makes a condition with that permission. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. In other words, if we are in such union with Jesus, if we are so in tune with Jesus, then the things that we ask for in prayer are the things that would bring Jesus glory and pleasure. These are the things that Jesus wants us to pray for. These are the things that God delights in giving us when we pray for them. If you pray that more people would come to know Jesus, and I believe that is part of the fruit that Jesus talks about in verse 16, God will answer this prayer. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that happens when more people come to recognize Jesus as king. That's a prayer that the Father will answer. In fact, this is how any fruit comes about, isn't it? Through our dependent prayer, because we can't bring this fruit about. I believe that if you ask God to grow the fruit of the Spirit in your life, I think that's a prayer that he would delight in answering that we would reflect love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things that God would want to see grow in us. So pray. Let me ask you, are you praying for fruit in the name of Jesus? Fruit in his world and fruit in your own life.
Finally, remaining in Jesus means loving. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Verse 11, I've told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Verse 17, this is my command, love each other. Jesus already spoke about a new command that he gave them in chapter 13. They are to love one another as Jesus has loved them. And in verse 13 here, Jesus shows them the depths of his love. He loved them by laying down his life for them on the cross, taking their sin, dying their death, and giving them life. And again, twice more in this passage, Jesus gives the same command for those who follow him. They must love each other. They must love as they have been loved through the cross. And this is not a slavish obedience. It's not an obligation that we feel is a great burden. In verse 11, it's about joy, the completeness of joy, shared joy with Jesus. Love is serious, isn't it? Love is a great test of whether we remain in Jesus. The Apostle John, and I'm sure as John was reflecting on these words of Jesus, as he wrote his letter, 1 John, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 19, he said this, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. It's a test, isn't it? Loving one another shows that we actually know the love of God, that we remain in Jesus. So let me ask you, do you love as you've been loved by Jesus? Do you need to forgive someone who's sought your forgiveness? Do you need to say sorry to someone that you have wronged? Do you need to reconcile a broken relationship? These are some of the fruit that comes about when we remain in the love of Jesus. But if you don't love, then how can you remain in Jesus? Okay, let me tie some of this together in an application. Do the ordinary things and let Jesus do the extraordinary. Uh, I always get concerned when I, I, I hear churches present these great slogans to their people. We're going to be world changers. We're going to release a new generation that will transform this city. I find those slogans daunting. I can't even change my diet, let alone change the world. And the more I look at myself, the more I realize that I don't believe the hype. I'm weak. I'm frail. I have little faith. And remember the context 
that Jesus is speaking these words to with his disciples. He's about to leave them. He's about to walk to the cross and they will be left by themselves. And they're afraid, their hearts are troubled, they are overwhelmed, they're distressed. And the disciples are anything but world changers. But you see, they will change the world. Jesus will use them to be witnesses from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But that's not what he tells them to do. He tells them to remain in him. He tells them to do the ordinary things. Listen. Obey. Pray. And love. You see, when we do the ordinary things, Jesus will do the extraordinary. And that's good news, isn't it? It's good news for plotters. I'm a plotter. And I think most of the Christian life is plotting. It's ordinary. It's remaining in Jesus by listening, obeying, praying, and loving. Day in, day out, year after year. Plotting for Jesus. That's my slogan. And the great thing about this is that all Christians can plod for Jesus. You see, if I told you that you had to do extraordinary things for Jesus, that you had to go out there and change the world, well, I think that would just break some of you. But Jesus tells you today, remain in me and do the ordinary. Those of you who struggle with chronic illness and have so little strength that it's all you can do to mumble at prayer. Do it. Do the ordinary. For those of you who are single parents, I have so much admiration for you. You are so exhausted, aren't you? You just want to strangle those kids, don't you? Do the ordinary and love them as Christ loved you. Those of you broken with grief and on the edge of despair, do the ordinary. Listen to Jesus and cling to him. Those of you burdened by the guilt of your sin, do the ordinary. Trust him and obey him. Give him your guilt and try one more time to put that sin to death. Take heart. Because you are not alone. Remain in Jesus as he remains in you. Do the ordinary things and let Jesus do the extraordinary. John Dixon is one of the most uh, gifted evangelists in Australia. He's, the, he's a Christian historian. He teaches at the University of Sydney. He's the author of over 15 books explaining and defending the Christian gospel. He's the director of Public, at the Centre of Public Christianity. He's a media presenter. You might have seen him on Q&A sometimes and other programs. And in his book, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, John Dixon explains how he became a Christian and a few of his friends who also went on to become gospel ministers. 
And it was through an ordinary Christian woman called Glenda who just did the ordinary things of obeying, loving, listening, and praying. I'm going to read to you a section of this book. I want you to be encouraged. Under God, my own conversion was the result of one person's willingness to embody the mission of the friend of sinners. My introduction to faith came not through family tradition, Sunday school, church attendance, or any other formal means of religious instruction, but through the irresistible power of friendship and good food. One of the relics of Australia's Christian heritage is the once-a-week scripture lesson offered in many state schools around the country. Usually the person running the lesson was an elderly volunteer from the local church. I took my chances with these harmless old ladies because non-scripture involved doing homework under the supervision of a real teacher. One of these scripture teachers, Glenda was her name, had the courage one day to invite the entire class to her home for discussions about God. The invitation would have gone unnoticed, except she added, if anyone gets hungry, I'll be making hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones. One Friday afternoon, several weeks later, I was sitting on a comfy lounge in this woman's home with half a dozen classmates, feasting on hamburgers and bracing myself for the God bit. I'd never been to church or even had a religious conversation of length, so this was an entirely new experience. I remember thinking at the time there was nowhere to run. I'd eaten so much food, I couldn't have gotten up out of the couch if I'd tried. As I looked around the room at my friends, all skeptics like me, I was amazed that this woman would open her home and kitchen to us. Some of the lads there were among the worst sinners in our school. One was a drug dealer and seller, one was a class clown and bully, and one was a petty thief with a string of break and enters to his credit. We returned the next Friday with more of our friends, and the next and the next. In fact, we turned up on this woman's doorstep most Friday afternoons for months. I could not figure Glenda out. What was she thinking inviting us for a meal and discussion? At no point was this teacher pushy or preachy. Her style was completely relaxed and generous. When her VCR went missing one day, she made almost nothing of it, even though she suspected quite reasonably that it was one of our group who took it. For me, her open flexible and generous attitude towards us sinners was the doorway into the life of faith. As we ate and drank and talked, it was clear this was no mere missionary ploy on her part. She truly cared for us and treated us like friends or perhaps more accurately, like sons. As a result, over the course of the next year, she introduced several of us from the class to the ultimate friend of, Jesus, a friend of sinners, Jesus, which is why this book is dedicated to Glenda. Glenda had taught scripture in the local high school for years with little observable fruit. She'd been faithful in the task but had not witnessed students coming to Christ for almost a decade. That year, everything changed. 
A citywide movement of prayer had commenced. Her particular group prayed specifically for Sydney's North Shore. They pleaded with the Lord of the Harvest to open the hearts of many who had not known him before. In particular, they prayed for the school ministries in which several of them were involved. Within the year, Glenda's ministry was booming as she hosted regular evangelistic events in her home. As many as 20 students from the local school eagerly crammed into her lounge room to ask their questions and to hear guest speakers she invited along. At least six of the students from her class of 1982 turned to Christ for the first time. Three of them are now passing the gospel to others full-time, including the author of this book. A few years after these strange days, I asked Glenda what she put her success down to. Without blinking, she answered, prayer. We earnestly prayed regularly and specifically for your school, and the Lord in his grace answered us. As an evangelist who is sometimes tempted to think too highly of skill, style, and creativity in evangelism, her words were and are an important reminder that the harvest is the Lord's, not mine. The most basic gospel-promoting task, therefore, is not evangelism, it is prayer to the Lord of the harvest. Friends, remain in Jesus and you will bear fruit. Do the ordinary things. Listen, obey, pray and love and he will do the extraordinary. Let me pray. Gracious Father God, uh, we thank you for your mercy that you would give us an opportunity to be connected to the vine. We ought to be cut off. But thank you that you have given us the words of Jesus that we might believe in him, that we might be cleaned, that we might be a branch that bears fruit. Gracious Father, please help us. Help us to be faithful to Jesus. Help us not to chase after the fruit. Help us to listen and obey him. Help us to prayerfully depend on you. And help us to love courageously as we have been loved. Gracious Father, please use us to bear much fruit for the glory of Jesus. In his name, amen.